Another VIP episode of Hero Paranormal Podcast, broadcasting from the base at La Madre Mountain, just south of Area 51. My name is Ryan, the original outlaw of the airwaves, bringing you another epic episode tonight. Yeah, they don't get much better. And uh, not only is the following guest someone I would not shy away at all from calling a friend, but he's a heck of a researcher. And on today's amazing podcast, we have returning guest, James Keenan. We go into rabbit holes, as expected, most of which start from mysteries and ancient secrets of the land itself. If you're wondering what land I'm talking about, well, by now, sure. Most people know the Uinta Basin of Utah is a cryptozoological and UFO hotspot, among other things. Let's not even get into the dimensionality and hollow earth aspects, underground, anyway. The area has a rich history of paranormal, dimensional, and underground lore. A trip to the Uinta Mountains starts off this adventure much like the many trips researchers like James Keenan have made to the basin. And um, if this is the first time you've heard of our guest, James Keenan, it won't be the last. The reason I say that is he's done a number of podcast shows. He's an author, researcher, and boots-on-the-ground investigator. James is a native of Los Angeles, California. Hollywood, if you want to be exact. Before having the opportunity to call himself an author, James worked in law enforcement and private investigations for over 20 years. This included the subfields of city policing, investigations for the district attorney's office of the best county in all of California, retail loss prevention, and ending insurance fraud investigations for several dull insurance companies. But the companies were okay. The people and the friendships made were great, and some continue even to this day. It's hard not to call James a friend. He has appeared on multiple television shows and programs, including those dealing with the paranormal, lost history, giants, and UFOs. James has made appearances on many radio and podcast shows internationally. Now, heck, some are even crazy enough to call him, well, okay, or to co-host them, but I, I'm hosting it. So I, I, I'm just going to say it. James has presented his findings and data points collected at multiple phenomena-based conferences because he's gone to multiple phenomena-based sites. Space Wolf Research is one of them. He most recently has focused much of his time and energy into the unexplainable events occurring in and around the Uinta Basin, located in northeastern Utah. Now, a a close runner-up for his time spent investigating is uh, the amazing, incredible country of Mexico. After all, his degree from the University of California, Santa Barbara, is focused on anthropology and archaeology of Mesoamerica, which comes into play very, very deeply into these investigations. We are, of course, discussing James Keenan's new book, The Giant and the Golden Underworld. James Keenan, welcome to the Hero Paranormal Podcast. Hey, Ryan. How you doing? Thanks for having me back. Great to have you back. And this new book is kind of right up my alley. One of, uh, one of my favorite topics is sort of underworld, underground, hollow earth type. You know, the reality is there are massive cavern systems as many shows, uh, research, now topographical maps with with the technology people have now we're finding out that there's a lot going on 
under our feet, aren't we? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, especially up on the Uintah Basin and the Uintah Mountains, uh, there is just a massive amount of underground cavern systems, cavities, voids, going east-west through the mountains, north-south from, you know, uh, Mosby Mountain down all the way uh, through the Mesa above Skinwalker Ranch and maybe even under Skinwalker Ranch. And I'm glad you mentioned Mosby Mountain because um, the so basically, uh, if if listeners don't know, there there's a lot going on in the basin. One of the properties involved is a place called Blind Frog Ranch, which has been catching a lot of flack online. But the reality is, there's probably no more legitimate spot on the planet. And I only say that because this location has undergone some pretty amazing things historically. And if I'm not mistaken, James, your new book is also sort of revolved around that same similar or particular area. Right. So the book is The Giant and the Golden Underworld. Uh, It's fictional, obviously, uh, set for adolescents and up. And the location that most of it occurs is just north of Blind Frog Ranch and then into the upper Uintas. And, you know, you made a great point. Uh, the, the show uh, has been taking a lot of flack. And you got to always remember that, you know, when you're in production, that, which I have nothing to do with, um, I, you know, I haven't mm-hmm. appeared on that show. And you got to remember that when you're dealing with television, they're trying to keep an audience uh, throughout the entire season and series, and, and you need to catch their attention within a 43-minute period every week. But in regards to the ranch itself, it is in a very unique location uh, where there was the Spanish, the old Spanish trail, and we know for a fact from finding all types of artifacts and and glyphs that have been left behind that there was a ton of mining going on uh, from the conquistadors and through their journals and everything we learned that a lot of the mines that they opened up were reopened so we need to look and find out in more ancient history who was even there before them because the Native Americans never did any mining Uh, they didn't like to intrude upon the land And when you go back through the historical data, you come upon almost every tribe, every band, also the Spaniards, the Mexicans, the fur traders, that they've come in contact with some type of tribe or other race that were of great stature. And so, you know, in the book, I wanted to accomplish... Um, covering not just the possibility that there were these people of great stature, and and obviously I named them the giants, uh, but just the locations underground and above ground that have all this history behind it that goes into the ancient, ancient past. And, man, uh, you nailed it. I think the the reality is, as far as occurrences go, um, something I really liked in your book is, uh, in your final thoughts, you said the truth is sometimes best told through fiction. And that's kind of what I was thinking throughout the book, because you hear reports in the area, oftentimes you read reports, historical reports in the area, and a lot of them have ver- a lot of similarities with uh, your book. And so your, your primary character, Dylan and a couple of his friends, let's get into it. They go uh, basically into the Uintas. And what, where should we take it from there? Because I think there's a lot of truth in what they find and, and how it kind of changes their lives. You, you start researching this stuff, and you realize, when you realize there's really something on the other side of what shouldn't be there, it does sort of change your life, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It, uh, you know, I always tell people that... Uh, my background is in anthropology and archaeology and investigator as in law enforcement. Uh, a lot of my uh, work during school was in Mexico. And I was 
interested in the petroglyphs and pictographs that were there at Dry Fork Canyon and Dinosaur National Monument on the basin. And I had heard of Skinwalker Ranch, but I didn't put it together for quite some time that it was like 20 miles away from both sites. And in Utah and Arizona and New Mexico, you have just very bizarre anthropomorphic and zoomorphic type creatures in the petroglyphs and pictographs that a lot of times don't make sense. And in my book, I wanted to, and I've done it in my past books too, the UFO and an Alien series covered a lot of ufology, shape-shifting, and then cryptozoology, but I wanted to get more into the Native American aspect with the new book and kind of make some corrections that people have, uh, you know, they've tied in the wrong tribes or bands into like Chief Wakara and the Rhodes Mine, Kershinaab, uh, the this treasure hunting ordeals that occur in the Uintah Basin. And I thought what a great way to uh, introduce through the characters, you know, Dylan is a Native American, he's a Timpanogos uh, Indian, which is Shoshone, not Ute. And then his uh, two friends are uh, Mormon. So I wanted to kind of put those two type of characters together because obviously the LDS church and the the tribes that are there had a lot of conflict in the past. And, and uh, you know, it's changed over history. A lot of the Native Americans are LDS now in that area. But to give the correct history for both uh, the Mormons and uh, the Timpanogos tribe and uh, kind of split where the Ute and the Shoshone are different, go into their oral traditions because along with the Shoshone, the Ute, and the Paiute, uh, they all have these oral traditions of giants. Mm -hmm. And for them, you, as you know well, very well, that the oral tradition is history to them. It's not mythology. And also that a lot of what seems to be occurring on the basin uh, and in the mountains that we have labeled as a skinwalker ranch phenomena, you know, seems to be coming from underground, uh, obviously transient, but definitely underground, uh, whether this phenomena is attracting, uh, excuse me, whether some type of energy below ground is attracting the phenomena or creating the phenomena, uh, we don't know, but it's there either way. So there's so many moving parts, and the easiest way for me to have uh, accomplished everything that I wanted to do was through a fictional story, you know, and, and then add in the morality factor that I uh, played through uh, with the characters and um, just be able to offer that opportunity for not, you know, just adults, but for uh, young teenagers and up to be able to experience uh, not just what I've experienced researching and investigating on the basin, but also all these oral traditions, mythology, legends that have occurred. It, it's just, it's exciting. And, uh, you know, I, I felt it was best to offer all that uh, learning experience and opportunity that I've had boots on the ground to the reader. So true. And the Native American aspect is so important because you realize so much about the tribes and also, you know, the bands that many have been kind of forgotten. But when you get into this oral history, everything lines up perfectly. It's like putting, you know, clear maps on top of each other. They're all identically placed. Um, you know, the, the, the people see the Ute tribe and you, you realize that this is a Colorado Plateau thing. Like, this goes way into the San Luis Valley. There's amazing Native American bands like the White River Utes, the Incompagres. I mean, you, you go and talk. There's considerably similar lore, both, uh, well, in every aspect. Like I said, you, you line it up, and it's like, it's there. If, you, if you're willing to look, it's there. And um, I agree with you because, 
you know, a lot of this lore, it's like spirituality itself. It doesn't make sense from a distance when it's heard from the outside, but when it's practiced or when it's seen from the center looking out, it makes perfect sense and it works every time. You know, um, you have spirituality in Western society and, you know, very minimal differences make huge gaps just because people aren't agreeing on the semantics. Yet it seems with these Native American legends, there's much less, in, it, they're more congruent. There's, there's less, am I right? Like there's, they just line up. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, it's interesting when you think about the fact that so many tribes and bands were always at conflict with one another for this certain particular area. And they all consider it, um, not just part of their their history and their background, but very a uh, very spiritual location, and you got to ask why. Uh, what was so important about this area that you know they fought for it between one another? Uh, they were willing to guard it and lay down their lives uh, against the white man intrusion, and when you go and you read the actual oral tradition stories of each of the tribes, uh, there are a lot of similarities um, in regards to how they describe uh, certain races or species that they come across, uh, that they um, are always looking for, that these other races and species are always attempting to uh, take things out of the ground or, or uh, enslave the Native Americans. And it makes you wonder what origin was for the tribes that when you go really deep into the history, origin may very well have been in that northeastern part of Utah. And that's what the, the conflict was always about, was maintaining that. I mean, look, the Ute fought the Navajo uh, over a long period of time, and that's how we even get, you know, the, the Skinwalker and the, the Yenalbalushi legends that occur in that area. So um, I think that if we really want to delve deeper into what the phenomena is that these shows currently are uh, trying to capture, probably uh, one aspect and avenue that they really need to start focusing more on would be the, uh, the historical uh, portion of it through the Native American culture and societies other than just the earliest um, white Europeans that were there in that area. Man, I could not agree more, James. The philosophical views of the Native Americans historically in that area from a vocal vocal perspective which is being lost daily that is like gold going through our fingertips as researchers because um as a as an example i had a recent friend someone i would consider a friend that would go to space wolf often a local who was very knowledgeable of all of the uh lore and she 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 could name you um the skinwalkers who were notable in the area and, you know, right off the tip of her tongue and things like this. And, you know, something you take for granted from one day to the next, she's gone. She was young, something you didn't think, you know, was going to disappear from a data perspective and boom, gone. You know, I just, all I remember is what we vocally spoke of whenever we were on, you know, Space Wolf together. And she, you know, it was amazing. You know, what I, what I remember, even what I remember speaks volumes of the area, but my gosh, it just, it just, it just shows the, um, the importance of this data and how quickly it's disappearing right before our very eyes. And I, I just want to, you know, congratulate you for delving, you know, head headlong into this from a historical, archeological, geographical perspective. So anyway, yeah, it's tough, man. It's so hard to see all of this amazing stuff leading us to some conclusions that are very difficult for 
the public to uh, kind of wrap their heads around. Yeah, no, it's um, it, it's interesting because there's over the years. I know you've you've been researching and collecting uh, that data far longer than I have, um, but for the amount of years and the time that I've put in the the technology that I've used, all that data collection, it, it would be so difficult to put everything into a nonfiction book. And I believe over through the course of the last four books I've written that I've put a lot of that information into those fictional books. But, you know, the, just because they're fictional doesn't mean that all the information in there isn't true. Um, a, a majority of it is actual, is factual, excuse me. Uh, the, this is the first book that I've included photography, photos, and pics in, which are all my own uh photos from the basin and the mountains, including underground. So it, it, it was just easiest for me to be able to uh, work so much of that data in there. Now, obviously, in the future, I do plan on doing a non-fictional uh, book where I am going to put a lot of those data points in, because like you said, it could be lost the very next day. And, you know, we, we have so little from the NIDS and the Bass era uh, you know, the new book came out, uh, Skinwalkers at the Pentagon, and it, it gave us a little bit more of that information, but still so much of that has been held back, obviously because they were contracting with the federal government and there's these NDAs um, in place. And then we get uh, these little glimpses from both uh, Mystery at Blind Frog Ranch and uh, the other show on History Channel. Mm -hmm. But... There is just so much information that has to get out there to help the researchers and, and the investigators. That way they're not, uh, you know, reinventing the wheel. Instead, they take all that data and can move forward from there. Now, I want to go back a little bit because a lot of this stuff goes way back. And it, it's, it's very interesting because this is stuff that eventually, um, it's hard to explain. Eventually, this goes into a situation where it challenges the human being, even researching the phenomena itself, into a material versus a spiritual phenomenon. And I think your book touches that many times. And um, there is something else that your books, I think, touch on, all of them, because I've read a lot of the previous ones to my kids. I'll, I might leave a few pages out because they're, they're toddlers, but they love them. They love them, and they're kind of getting an idea what daddy's into. And um, it, it's it's really cool because those books kind of did it for me, and that was a huge – for me, that, that kind of bridged a huge gap that, as a parent, I would have to do myself. So thanks for that. And, sure. um, yeah, your book – goes into this underground world that may possibly very likely exist under the Uinta Basin. Can we get into that a little bit and the science behind it? Sure. So the Uinta Mountains are, they're somewhat unique. Uh, they're east-west trending, so they're not completely uh, east-west. Uh, and there are obviously other east-west mountains uh, ranges, but this is uh, one of the few, and it was, it's one of the highest elevation mountains without any recent glaciation, which is very bizarre how that was possible, how they formed. You have a lot of known caves, caverns, underground systems. Um, you know, you have some just above Vernal that you know are five, six miles long. You have others near Pole Creek, which I've been underground, which leads to an underground sump, which is an underground lake that's a quarter mile in length, who knows how deep, and uh, leads into additional caverns. You have cave systems that we know of entrances and sinkholes in the mesa above Skinwalker Ranch. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, a lot of these entrances are on Ute uh, 
reservation land, which they won't allow you to enter. But you have this connectivity. You have in the history of this area a huge lake known as ancient uh, Uintah Lake, which covered two states or portions of Utah and Colorado. Um, a lot could have occurred during the course of that period, which started around 55 million years ago. You have to have some type of meteorite or asteroid strike because there are just too many anomalous material in the ground there, such as high iridium uh, and the way parts of the basin are formed that look like something impacted it. Absolutely looks like something from outer space. And we're talking about hundreds of thousands of acres. And I'm so glad that you mentioned the things that are present there that aren't anywhere else, like gilsonite, present nowhere gilsonite. else on the planet. Amazing. Yeah, you have uh, the gilsonite is a hardened hydrocarbon uh, that is very unique. Uh, it, it's like an, uh, it, it, it's, there's something like it found in three other locations in the world, but nothing quite as good as the gilsonite. And how it formed is still under debate. A lot of people believe that uh, it required uh, a heat source for it to harden like that. Um, you know, what better way than some type of uh, meteor asteroid strike? Mm -hmm. And, you know, you have a lot of shocked um, quartz, too, in the area, which would have come from something, you know, instantaneously heating that ground. And like you said, this, this stuff that is in other parts of the planet is nowhere near the quality. And this is the problem with a lot of things in the basin we have, uh, well, without, without it, it's almost disrespectful to say, because something may be found in the future, but the, the largest petroglyph alley on the planet that I'm aware of is nine mile Canyon. And many of the implications much, much like, they describe things that are out of this world. Yeah, they, the, uh, the anthropomorphic and zoomorphic figures are obviously just something truly bizarre. Uh, most of them aren't understood. And uh, again, you know, if, when people are listening to this, I, I fully understand that petroglyphs and pictographs are subjective and, you know, what you're viewing, only the artist that created would know exactly what it is. But here's what I always posit to people is you're seeing what's there, but have you ever considered what's missing? There are whole swaths of subject matter missing that are normal daily life that you see in all the other uh, writings and carvings and paintings throughout the world. You're missing daily life, such as structures they lived in, the musical instruments, um, uh, the animals around them, when you see animals, they always seem to be in distress, like they're running away from something or looking at something coming from above. You're also missing one of the most important things, which is the maize, the corn. There's none of that around there. And you have to ask yourself, what was so important? What was occurring that whoever was the artist over thousands of years were leaving out everything that should have been put in and instead creating the, this subject matter that uh, I don't think we'll ever fully understand. But it, it's just amazingly interesting to look at these characters, the shapes, where they're coming from, what they're doing, how they're impacting the other figures or the animals in the petroglyph or the pictograph. And in Nine Mile Canyon, you know, even though it's called Nine Mile, I think it's 54 miles long. Oh, and they are yeah. everywhere, yeah. everywhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah, don't think you can go down it and it's nine miles. Don't do that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, And you're talking about hundreds of sites along that area above Price, Utah. Um, you know, if you travel in your vehicle, you're going to miss hundreds if not thousands of, uh, of pieces of rock art 
just due to the fact that they're everywhere. And you have multiple cultures. Uh, you have a group that we have named the Fremont culture and another group uh, known as the Barrier Canyon style culture. Um, and Barrier Canyon style actually goes all the way down to San Juan River uh, culture, which was down in southeastern Utah. So the Fremont and the, this Barrier Canyon style, whoever they were, we really don't know, covered you know, large amounts uh, of areas throughout Utah, Wyoming, and Colorado. Yet they all seem to be documenting uh, similar, if not the same, subject matter occurring over the course of maybe 5,000 years. It's amazing. And I think it's funny, the power that history holds. And what I mean by that is how quickly, you know, I'm so glad you mentioned the dismissiveness of the Native American perspectives. Native American perspectives are often dismissed. Yet, it seems that they're drawn perfectly in some cases, as you said in these pictographs and petroglyphs, much like, you know, the perfect angles of Chaco Canyon, the shapes and the angles to the stars that the Aztecs and the Native Americans left behind, and that those are treasures in and of themselves. Yet, there are actual treasures which have been dismissed from the Native American perspective, yet how many people have chased the Spanish perspective when described rooms of gold, many of, you know, Karishanab. When it comes from other perspectives, the treasure hunters come out and everybody lends credence to these legends and lores without actually looking at the foundations. Am I right? Absolutely. Uh, you just made a great point and, and something I covered in the new book was the Spaniards spoke about seven cities of Cibola. And they originally got this information from where? From the Native Americans. Mm -hmm. But when you go through the archives, and remember that the Museum of America is in Madrid, Spain, and the old archives are in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and Mexico City. So you have to travel to these areas to get the old journals from the conquistadors that were originally here. What you find is extremely interesting because when you're talking about seven cities of Cibola, what if it wasn't meaning that the seven cities of gold were actually built, but from the way that they've written it, that there was enough gold already cached from a past race of unknown, whoever they were, of gold bullion that was capable of building seven cities of gold. And you have to break down that old Latin and that old Spanish. There's also interesting that uh, ties into the Welsh and a, possibly a Welsh prince that was here 800 years ago. Um, and, and you see a lot of that ancient Gaelic in uh, the petroglyphs. So what if we're talking about information that we're seeing at, as white Westerners instead of looking and interpreting it the way that the writer had written it. And you talked about Kershenop. Well, when you break those two words down, Ker is actually from Gaelic, ancient Gaelic, and it's, uh, it's Karig. And Shenab is ancient Hebrew. So how the hell did it get into northeastern Utah? So Kershanab means there dwells the great spirit. But when you're talking about the true meaning, Kerig Shanab from the ancient Gaelic and the Hebrew, it's actually stone bolt hollow. So what does that bring to mind? Stone bolt hollow, that there's something underground, a structure of some sort or maybe an ancient city or somewhere of origin that we should really be searching for, especially with all these cavern systems available to us below ground. And when you realize who searched for these seven cities of gold, I mean, these were in, especially for their times, these were amazing undertakings. Of course, with today's technology, this can be done by, uh, you know, it doesn't take a government to do it. 
Um, the now the legend, the, the interesting thing about the lost cities um, of Cibola and Kivera is that the location. This is kind of hidden. There's a lot of secrets. And I think something else that is interesting is when you get into the Native American lore, you can sense, at least as an outsider, you can sense a sensitivity. So the location of these um, areas in the mountains are pretty important. Um, Let's go into what we do know about Utah treasure, which is significant. I mean, I can't even imagine how many books have been written when you consider the roads and the, uh, I mean, we have Kerry Ross Boren. We have the, the amount of books, and both of them have worked on many books together. The amount of books that have been written about this just appearing in the Uinta Mountains themselves as the location is significant in itself. Am I right? Even with the LDS church, you have this history as to uh, what occurred when they first got here. And you have to think to yourself, the Mormons, when they got to Utah, were dirt poor. They could barely survive. So how was it that a couple of years later, they were suddenly capable of bringing hundreds of thousands of people uh, over to the Americas? You know, Where did this uh, money come from? And how are they capable of building their temples and the cities? And how are they capable of creating their own gold coins if there was no gold to be found? And a lot of people say, well, it came from the Sutter's Mill area because the original LBS that Brigham Young had sent went to California and then were called back and brought it. But they only brought a couple of bags. There was no way to mint what they minted unless they found a normal source that was local or very close to the Salt Lake City area. And these individuals like uh, that you had named Rhodes and Borm, they've had access to certain historical documents in that church that not many other people have. So... Um, you, you know, and, and obviously you take it at uh, face value. Here, here's only two people that have provided this information. But like you said, there's tons of other books written on these topics where data has come from other locations. But, you know, put that aside. How about just the data that's available in the archives from the Spaniards and the Mexicans? How about the data uh, through the information that was passed on by the fur traders and the trappers in regards to what they saw. You know, when you start putting this together and then you look at the really old historical data, which are the petroglyphs, the pictographs, and the artifacts that are being found of the Fremont culture and the Barrier Canyon style, man, you have a lot of similarities over thousands of years right up to, you know, the 20th century. So what's going on? You know, something, even if you look at a fictional story, like the ones that I write, there's always truth behind it. It originated from somewhere that was in reality. Exactly true. And there was, you know, big displays of um, this wealth that Salt Lake City's best-known pioneer landmarks show very well. One of which, my, let's see, this was great-great-grandfather was involved with, which was the Eagle Gate Monument. It was just his refinery, which was used to do it. But, you know, it just goes to show these, these examples of wealth that at the time were very rare. Um, we're talking about a 4,000-pound bronze eagle with a wingspan of 20 feet over, you know, a massive roadway near the temple. And, um, you know, the Daughters of the Utah Pioneers Museum located nearby. Now, what's interesting is this wealth just was uncanny. It came almost immediately and it, it, it was, it, 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 I don't know. It's hard to explain. I think that the adjacent Uinta Basin has more to do with it than a lot of people are willing to mention. Oh, Absolutely. You know, you mentioned the technology, and I don't, 
I think everything that we've heard about in the past is continuously being regurgitated in regards to the Skinwalker Ranch phenomena and uh, Kershenov or the Rhodes Mine or the Mormon Mine, Brigham Young Mine, whatever you name it. But what I've done is I, I've, I, I, try and I, I obviously have done my research. I know all the historical data and information. I read the books that are out there or brought out recently. But what I'm doing differently, and you, you named it, I mean, I even, w when you uh, have had me out on your property, I've used this new technology. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm using ground-penetrating radar, which actually has three different settings. I can use a, a 100, 300, or 500 megahertz, meaning I can go all the way down to 80 feet with my, my GPR. I have a brand-new 3D magnetic ground imaging which can see non-invasively into the ground to 64 feet tell me exactly what's there without having to dig an inch of dirt up i have new deep penetrating metal detection units that can go down to about 35 feet so the information that i'm bringing out i promise you isn't old and it isn't uh just me making it up. I have the data points to back it up. I have vector magnetometers and a cesium magnetometer. Look at, uh, you and I have talked privately about one of these four very anomalous magnetic locations that have this transient energy that can't be explained. The largest of them that has just the weirdest shift from a negative 14 microtesla up to a 62 microtesla meaning that there should either be a cavity below ground or a huge magnet, and then it's going back and forth is on your property. And Amazing. I would have never been able to find this diagonal line that matches up and goes from your property, which is just south and adjacent to Skinwalker Ranch. And guess what? All the way up to Blind Frog Ranch, and then a mile up in, in the same diagonal line to a location that uh, I'm still researching and involved in that I don't want to give out too much information until I'm able to uh, fully understand what's uh, going on there and it evolves into something else. But uh, the new technology is something that I rely on a lot. And it has just brought out a wealth of vast new information that will hopefully contribute to solving whatever is occurring in that area. Well, without going into it, having worked as a fly fishing guide for nearly a decade in that northern area of where we previously discussed, I can say that you're not barking up the wrong tree. There are thunderous claps of truth to what you're saying. And oh, man. Yeah, it, it's epic. Yeah. Yeah, you know, Ryan, what's really interesting is, so you have this area uh, around Blind Frog Ranch. All this area is either Ute Reservation, BLM, Bureau of Land Management, which is the federal government, or private-owned land. But what I believe is the most important location, guess what? Who owns it? The state of Utah has this mm -hmm. one spot in the middle of all this other stuff that they have had. And guess when they initially took it? Back when the Mormons got here in the 1850s, 60s, and they would not give it up. So that in and of itself has me just completely cued into this location. And initial findings and I don't want to say a whole lot until I'm able to research it more but you know guess what's below ground guess what we're coming across <laughs> should I say I don't know <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean it, it's it, it just it, it makes me wonder uh, you know about so much of this information when you see these old maps and you hear the stories that have been told, man, it matches up and looks like this spot. And 
it's just a matter of time. And I agree I, with I, you. I agree yeah, with you. I, I, I'm so hesitant to say any more because I don't want to. We, we must leave it there. We must. Yeah. But there, there's so. something interesting. Kind of this leaves a little bit way out of, out of this out of this area or this room. Let's talk about what we're really talking about, which is this. You know, a lot of people are dodging this idea that there's gold available in this area, and I think it's glad that you you mentioned the Mosby area earlier. Mosby Creek historically was like an ATM. It was like the go-to place to pan for gold. And I agree with you that there <clears throat> is a lot to be discussed in the semantics because the seven cities of gold, I think, were described, if I'm not mistaken, this is Aztec treasure, and we're talking about gold bricks that could build seven golden cities. Is that correct? That kind of changes the perspective. Yeah, you have, they said that there's, uh, the Rhodes family said there was enough gold bullion available to change the world forever. Wow. And others have said that there was enough gold bullion available to pave the roads in Salt Lake City in gold. And, you know, not just that, but look at all the large old smelters that are around Mosby Creek. Uh, and you're talking, these are big enough and large enough to have smelted a lot of different types of ores at high temperatures. They could have done, uh, pulled a lot of gold out of the copper. And even of greater interest is just within the last 15 years, Ryan, um, and you were saying it earlier that the geologists and people always said there's no way that the Uintah Mountains have gold, that they just were undermineralized and couldn't produce it. It, 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 it couldn't happen. Yet you have all this Spanish uh, writing and things in the trees that point towards it. But you have this huge, long fault line that has just recently been studied within the last 15 years and understood. And guess what? mineralization is localized to this fault throughout the entire fault. And guess where it travels through? All these locations that have been discussed since the Mormon times around the 1840s. So, uh, you know, as we're moving forward in time and the technology is getting better and there's more studies being done by the University of Utah and BYU, well, guess what? It's looking like what you know, you and I and a bunch of other researchers and treasure hunters have been saying for years. And and the buck doesn't stop there. It gets weirder, doesn't it, James? Because this, like you said, this 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 has a paranormal aspect, which is hard to kind of tack onto the gold treasure hunting historical phenomena that's already present and lines up with everything else. There's a portion of the lore that has an occult paranormal aspect that's hard to deny. And um, I've been a victim of this. I've been fishing in Soapstone Basin, for example. And this Soapstone Basin area has great fishing, great fishing, great camping, great all kinds of stuff. I was there with a friend. We literally put our stuff down for a minute, his backpack, my fly rod. We walked over, turned around, they were gone. And this stuff happens. And it doesn't just happen high in the Uintas, it happens on these ranch farmland properties in the basin as well. Absolutely. And, you you know, that goes along with the paranormal. You have the hitchhiker effect that takes place. And to prove that it's a real phenomenon occurring, you have a lot of physicists that we know by name, multiple physicists that are looking into this and that don't deny it. They say it, it's happening, and a lot of the research that, you know, the Advanced Aerospace Weapons System Application Program, OSAP, was looking at dealt with this hitchhiker effect. So you have these strange occurrences of things disappearing, you know, almost comical sometimes, like you're being messed with purposely. And then you have other things, the Skinwalker Ranch phenomena, hitchhiker effect being part of that. Just a ton of different type of phenomena occurring for this location. And is it tied into the precious metals 
Oh, absolutely. Is it tied into the origin for the Native Americans? 100%. Is it tied into giants? Absolutely. You just have to drive up to Dry Fork Canyon and look at the petroglyphs there and see what they were writing. They had these seven-foot-tall glyphs of giants with six digits on each hand and these huge feet that they have up there. It's all there. And the interesting thing is it keeps going. It, even in today's amazing world of technology, it seems like we're returning to the same aspects where things that should not be connected seem to connect in the basin. Even if it's aerospace in the form of Robert Bigelow and his ownership of portions of northeastern Utah, or if it was uh, NASA being involved with uh, other things. The area somehow has a rich history of paranormal, dimensional, and underground lore, no matter which culture. And the interesting thing is, the adventure is uh, kind of historical, and you've kind of gone way into the way into this. And I think that's important because this goes way back um, when you know when when they were mapping out literally the Spanish Trail. Uh, you know, Father Escalante and Dominguez in 1776 had some hiccups in that area. And we have curses. We have today's water projects, which have dammed up historical amounts of water residing under historically high levels of electrical, well, basically the highest powered lines in the basin go right over the area we're talking about. And these mysteries and ancient secrets of the land itself seem to be activated in a way. Are are you finding that in any way, shape or form? Yeah, since they put in those half million volt plus, those kilovolt plus uh, power lines, mm-hmm. I think it energized whatever was there. Um, and in regards to um, newer findings, you know, NASA was involved. You also had the USGS prior to NASA in that location from 1962 to 1968 doing a lot of uh, top secret type of work building huge underground arrays throughout the basin that were supposed to have been removed Uh, in the documentation in 1970 uh, through 75. That was the NASA CIA documents that came out of the Air Force base there and outside of Albuquerque, New Mexico. It states that all these arrays and the wiring and all the technology that was attached to the seismic arrays underground were removed. Well, guess what? I've been out there and I've shown this in my presentations at conferences, the 3D ground imaging I have, guess what it shows still underground? The the seismic uh, monitors are there. The wiring is there. So what they said was removed wasn't completely removed. And have we now interfered or energized uh, natural phenomena or other phenomena that we don't quite understand and given it more energy in order to pull from. And hence the reason for, you know, this area being now known as a UFO alley, um, having a lot of different type of uh, cryptid type creatures in the area uh, and a lot of interesting oral tradition stories, you know, have we added to it since 1980 and, and uh, increased its power output that it can pull from. I agree. It does seem as if an ember of this mystery was picked up in the late nineties and we've been just passing that hot potato and torch back and forth between researchers ever since. And you have to, because this is an important area that I think it's important. Something you mentioned about your research, you cannot, Well, you mentioned that you can do these things without having to dig an inch of dirt up. And one thing that has been found in this area, as I'm sure you can attest to, is that when actual digging proceeds, something else comes afterwards. Yeah, you uh, sometimes you have some strange phenomena occur to you or to someone you know. And... uh, it's interesting. Uh, you, you know, it, I guess it depends a lot where, where the digging occurs. And, you know, as, as it's occurring or drilling now, we have a lot of this uh, borehole drilling occurring at least down to 100 feet. We're finding 
underground rivers and lakes and streams. And, you know, we've been talking about that, that, uh, you know, there's a moderately saline water table underneath, so it could be positively charged. It has a lot of, it's ionic. Uh, There's a lot of magnesium, so you have this hard water, which can, you know, allow whatever is occurring to travel great distances through it. It's amazing. It's such a fascinating area. And, you know, it's raw and rugged just on its visual, you know, surface. However, when you rise above just the material, visual, what you see, there's so much more going on. And rising above that, let's go into the UFOs a little bit. I'm sure that this is something everybody wants to hear about, and it's expected. Most people know the Uinta Basin is a cryptozoological and UFO hotspot. Have you had um, an opportunity to engage in anything like that? Or have you felt some of those physical attributes when you're in these areas where, you know, your body doesn't feel quite right? Yeah, so uh, in my last two presentations at uh, two different conferences, I collected 92 seconds of video and uh, I presented some of the still photos I've pulled from that where I came in contact with an orange orb probably the size of a basketball uh, around the blind frog ranch area. And what I did was you and I know that we could provide all the video in the world and people say, Oh, it's Photoshopped. Uh, This can be created and you can't believe it. So I had to think out of the box. Well, what technology have we not used that maybe can provide newer data points towards um, looking into this, uh, UAP phenomena. Mm-hmm. Well, what I used was a, I, I'm a former, former police officer, uh, been trained to use, uh, you know, KA, uh, which is uh, microwave at 34.7 gigahertz technology. It's a police radar gun. You know, it's what guns you, the police use to monitor your speed. So I used this technology and uh, I used laser technology. When I used the laser technology, the orb did nothing. There was no interaction. The moment I used pop radar and turned on the microwaves, this UAP started evading the, what was being sent out from the gun. And what was even more interesting was the fact that this UAP had to have some type of surface texture to it, because what did it do? It returned a signal back to the gun uh, of anywhere from 11 to 44 miles per hour during these 92 seconds of interaction. So that in and of itself was huge for me because I had always wondered, are we talking about maybe just lights or fault line phenomena like in Marfa, Texas, where Mm -hmm. these green and orange orbs uh, come up out of the ground and more than likely some type of natural phenomena that we're unaware of, um, you know, that are created from somewhere deeper underground? Or is this some type of object that uh, is, you know, tangible, it can be touched, it, can, it has that surface? And sure enough, that's what this did, it returned. And I, I even used it on your property. I thought that in and of itself was an incredible new find, and I've been presenting this. So you're talking... Uh, about a UFO alley, well, absolutely. There's just all kinds of strange phenomena occurring. And it's interesting, if you happen to be there at night during a storm, uh, in the winter, for some reason, whatever's there interacts with you even more so. It sure seems like inclement weather weather has more other things as well, but inclement weather Um, As you mentioned, uh, temperatures that make a trip out to the basin a little bit tougher, um, things that make it more of a quote-unquote adventure, difficulties even, Um, the hitchhiker phenomena that's expected. There seems to be an array, just an array of possibly ancient protectors of the area, if you want to call them that, or ancient alien artificial technologies, as many have contributed in more modern terms. But I think it's mainly semantics. The Native American lore may be speaking of the very same entities. And the 
total of this invoice that we're looking at is a lot of paranormal, dimensional, and underground stuff that isn't just lore, it's reality. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you, you're, uh, you mentioned one thing in regards uh, to what occurs, and, and is it ancient technology that is interacting with us, hurting people without knowing that it's doing that? You know, is, is it transmitting some type of microwave uh, radiation uh, all the way up through the low gamma uh, spectrum without knowledge of what it's doing to who is now there, which are human beings. And I've always thought and tried to approach it in, in that aspect that everything that we've heard may just very well be something that is so old and has been there for such a long time and either woke up or reactivated or, or uh, is now being powered that is involving itself in what's occurring on the basin and people you know unfortunately come into its way or direction and get hurt so true so true as with any amazing you know animal or you know predator that may be near extinction this is this is actively functioning as something that is an alpha predator and with that, let's get to, it's, it's so amazing. It's so fascinating. All of it is. But as we wrap up, James, let's get to the giant and the golden underworld where people can pick it up and um, w what you recommend uh, as far as uh, experiencing this alternate history. Sure. So uh, it's for sale in ebook and in paperback on Amazon. Uh, it'll be available in the next week or so at Barnes & Noble. Uh, you can go to Amazon.com forward slash author forward slash James Keenan, and then it'll direct you to uh, all my books. And in regards to uh, experiencing, you know, uh, like I said, if you can't get out to the basin in those mountains, uh, my last four books, the three before this one were children's books, this I wrote more for adolescents and up, so uh, 13 and up, older, uh, to include a lot of what occurs, a lot of that phenomena in some type of storyline. But, you know, you, you definitely, if you have the opportunity to go to Roosevelt or to Vernal, uh, that's a good uh, location, either one of those, to kind of get to introduce, be introduced to the to the Uintah Basin and the Uintah Mountains. And, you know, you have both of the ranches that are on television right now. Maybe the opportunity to actually go to one of those and be on it is available. So um, I always say experiencing it in person is, is, you know, not just unique, but something that'll stay with you, you know, forever the rest of your life. Very important in my opinion as well. And Roosevelt and Vernal are the places to go. Can't thank you enough for coming on, James, and thank you again for another book uh, that is related to this topic and delves into the mystery. And um, are there any other websites in, that you're in, attributed with or involved with that you'd like to mention? Yeah, so uh, if you go to www.youtube.com forward slash C forward slash James Keenan Giants and paranormal. That's my YouTube uh, channel where I have put up quite a bit of this information in PowerPoint presentations for everybody to look at. So cool. And I can't wait to uh, meet up with you in the basin soon and research with you as well. James, it's been an honor and a pleasure. And I, I can't thank you enough for coming on. Hey, you know, I appreciate you having me and thanks for uh, allowing me to discuss the new book. Well, there you have it. James Keenan bringing an amazing podcast. There's no wonder he's in a re returning guest multiple times. We go into so many rabbit holes whenever he comes on that it's hard to uh, keep track of where you start and where you end up. These mysteries and ancient secrets of the land itself 
can take you down many pathways. And when you're talking about enough gold bars to build seven cities, it's not a wonder that this is getting a lot of uh, attention lately. The area has a rich history of paranormal dimensional and underground lore. It's all wrapped up quite nicely in James' most recent book, The Giant and the Golden Underworld. It is fictional, but it has a lot of neat things in there, and you can experience the alternative history yourself. Get this on Amazon. And as James so wonderfully puts, the truth is sometimes best told through fiction. Until next time, keep your eyes to the skies, feet on the ground, but don't forget to take a look around. Time machine, third eye feeling like an evizine. Blast off, blast off, blast off, blast off. Come blast off in my time machine, third eye feeling like an evizine. Blast off, blast off, blast off.